You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about the history of science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on April 12th, 2023. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another Q&A about history of science and technology. I see a number of questions here. Uh, okay, I'm not sure if this one really counts, but it's from uh, Lala here. <clears throat> Do you think it will be possible to recreate historical figures as bots to interact with and get their perspectives on current research areas? Interesting question. I mean, okay, so the issue is, that as time moves on, we have new concepts. And if you create a bot, let's say an Alan Turing bot um, or an Aristotle bot, and you're going to create it by training it from the corpus of material that those people left behind. And for example, the, uh, the Turing bot simply won't have a... Uh, something about large language models, let's say, or something about, um, oh, I don't know, what's actually new in the world, something about, I don't know, object-oriented programming or something. I'm not sure that's the best example of a new thing, but um, uh, so that bot will be sort of disconnected from those areas of knowledge because, you know, you train the bot from the kind of... Um, the language that existed at that time. Now, I suppose a question would be, is there a bridge that can be made, let's say, to uh, what's a good new concept? Um, uh, well, a live stream. Let's say the concept of live streaming. Is there something which sort of exists in kind of meaning space, which connects the concept of live streaming to something which Alan Turing would have known about? or more extremely, that uh, Aristotle would have known about? Um, that's an interesting question. And I suppose it's conceivable because, you know, one of the things that tends to happen is this kind of, uh, th this apparent chaining of concepts by virtue of the fact that this thing that has a, perhaps a thing which has a new name is somehow seen to be, you know, that there'll be documents that say live streaming is the process of doing blah, 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 which then effectively connects that name to something that moves it close in meaning space to the thing that it is described as being like. So, okay, my first response was, there are just going to be a lot of words that those bots just don't know. Um, but my second response, I think, is that there might be some sort of bridges between things that were known and things that um, we have today. I suppose a good exercise would be to imagine, I've, I've thought about this before actually, you know, you, you are talking to the reconstituted Aristotle bot or the Pythagoras bot or the Newton bot or whatever, and you're sitting there with your laptop and assume it's a nice multimodal bot so it's able to see you in your laptop and all those kinds of things. Um, and then the question is, how can you explain in its terms what the laptop is, let's say, to, well, any of those figures. Um, 
you know, I think to Turing, at the end of his life, 1954, he had used an actual electronic computer. So the fact that there is a miniaturized version of that would be unsurprising. To an Alan Turing of 1936, when he was first inventing Turing machines, a little bit more surprising. Kind of like, um, it's a, I think for him, it will be kind of a wow that it goes from this concept of a universal machine to the actuality of a laptop that can run all these different programs. I think um, that would be quite a, quite a surprise, but perhaps not an incomprehensible surprise. I think that um, when you go further back in time to a Newton or to a Pythagoras or to an Aristotle, I think it becomes quite challenging to explain what a laptop is. Um, and uh, you know, I've I've thought somehow that um, uh, the Pythagoreans, for example, one might be asking, kind of, you know, it might be like a, a box of souls, so to speak. It has this kind of intrinsic animation, that intrinsic ability to do things that is sort of reminiscent in that, in that time more of things that were thought of as having souls, like like people or maybe some animals and things like this, and um, then. You could you could ask sort of who are the souls? What are the souls? Whose souls are in this laptop? And then it becomes a complicated thing. It's like all the people who've written content and created programs and so on that are now running on the laptop. In what sense are their souls somehow embedded in the laptop? It gets it gets very weird. And I think, but I think that those are the types of explanatory forms that one would have to use. I mean, it is of course a thing to be thought about in our times of when you are looking from the future, uh, looking at uh, from, from now to the future, those things which will become well-known concepts in the future, how do we explain them today? And in a sense, somebody like me, that's a, a large part of kind of what I have spent my, my time doing is figuring out things which are sort of artifacts from the future and you try to explain them today. And sometimes it's really challenging. Um, and sometimes it's, it's kind of... Uh, my efforts of exposition are sort of partly born out of a desire to, to be able to explain artifacts in the future today. And one of the things that tends to happen is you invent names for things, and those become sort of, they, they eventually, that name eventually builds up kind of a, a, a certain, not I wouldn't say mythology, but it builds up a certain, a certain structure around it. You know, the concept of computational irreducibility, which I introduced in 1984, I think, has now built up sort of a big enough snowball of concepts around it that it begins to be something which is well-situated for many purposes. But when it was sort of raw at the beginning, it was certainly explainable, but I think it had, it becomes easier and easier to explain the more kind of network there is around the concept. And so... You know, it is an interesting thing to what extent there are things that we can imagine from the future and can we conceptualize them today? And that's kind of asking the same type of thing as taking the culture today and moving it back and trying to explain it to Aristotle or something. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to see that that there are things which are will be explainable because they are features of the human condition, effectively. There are things deeply you know, tied into the human condition, which really hasn't, in some intrinsic sense, changed much over the, a few thousand years. Um, and uh, you know, this question of how do you explain things you know, in, in the future, perhaps there'll be some you know, virtualized 
analog of of uh, human condition, and there'll be all kinds of uh, you know connections between biology and digital kinds of things that are very different from what we have today. And it may be extremely difficult to explain kind of um, sort of uh, experiences and so on from that time. It, it's kind of like uh, one asks the question: you know, What it's what is it like to be a fill in the X, you know, a, a kind of animal, a, you know, a bat, a cat, uh, whatever else, a computer for that matter. What's it like to be such and such? And we have people have a hard time explaining that or internalizing that. But if you imagine sort of the the, uh, uh, the 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 person from the future or the analog of a person in the future, what's it like to be a that thought about from our situation today? It can be a very challenging thing. Well, let's see. Uh, Emmanuel, probably not the real name here, is asking, why do many great mathematicians complete their most influential work in their early 20s? You know, I think that's partly a myth. I think that what tends to happen is this. At some level, people have a certain, a given person has a certain way of thinking about things. And I, you know, I could say that in my own case, it has to do with sort of finding primitive elements of of uh, of some complicated collection of ideas and then building back up sort of an engineering structure based on those. It's kind of very much a break things down into these kind of uh, symbolic components, so to speak, from which things can be constructed. That's my kind of uh, uh, mode of operation or something. And things, it turns out there's a wide range of things to which one can do that, whether it's a fundamental theory of physics, whether it's constructing computational language, whether it's other kinds of things. That turns out to be a very fertile kind of MO, so to speak. And I think that it's often the case that any given person has a certain way of thinking about things. And that way of thinking about things will often manifest quite early in their life. Sometimes it requires some development because the uh, it 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 kind of it, it gradually kind of deepens and and one is gradually able to enunciate better what that way of thinking is and and connect it to things and so on. But if we take it to, as that people tend to have some definite way of thinking about things that who knows how it's how it's built in, so to speak. Let's say it manifests quite early. There may very well be things where that way of thinking about things just allows one to pick some low-hanging fruit. And I think that's what has happened in a number of cases with people where sort of the great discoveries were made very early in their lives is they were fortunate enough that their particular way of thinking was a good fit with the ambient kind of uh, uh, situation in science, let's say, and they were able to pick some low-hanging fruit. Now, Many different things can happen. It could be the case that a particular way of thinking about things isn't relevant when one's 20 years old, but by the time the world has changed and one's 50 years old, suddenly the world has changed and that way of thinking now becomes relevant and there's some potentially low-hanging fruit to be picked. But I think that, uh, you know, I, I remember having this conversation with Benoit Mandelbrot, the, the creator of Fractals, not somebody who who um, uh, I think he... he uh, um uh not somebody who well he he had all sorts of uh, strange interactions with me but but in any case one of the things that i remember him saying was 
kind of um, uh, complaining about how everybody thought that uh, sort of great work was always done by the young. And his point was, if you are going to integrate many different areas, you have a much better chance to do that when you are when you know more and you know about more different areas, and that's much more likely to happen when you're older than when you're younger. And his claim was that kind of the the discoveries of the young are these point discoveries where you can kind of just go in and kind of make a surgical strike on some area of science and make progress. But these big integrative kinds of uh, ways of thinking about things are more the domain of the older uh, of older folk. And I think there's some some truth to that idea. I think that um, in I mean in in uh, if you look, I, I did once look at this actually. I wrote a piece about Ramanujan, who was somebody who was notable for having done things when they were comparatively young, um, a mathematician. Um, I did look at kind of, uh, I think I looked at named theorems in mathematics, and I looked at the age of the person at the time when that named theorem was produced. And it, it is quite a broad distribution. Um, and uh, we, we have the data for that in, in, um, uh, in our knowledge base, actually, of, of named theorems of mathematics and, and the people who made them and, and when the theorem was produced so you can compute their age and so on. Um, so I think... I think it's a bit of a myth, but as I say, for instance, even in the case of Ramanujan, his kind of uh, MO was was essentially being a very good calculator with numbers and algebra and so on, and being able to form hypotheses by doing essentially mathematical experiments. And he started doing that kind of pretty young, and he got interesting results. Now, he also died quite young, so didn't have the opportunity to go on and, and produce results that are at a much greater age. But um, so I, I think it's, um, um, uh, I, as I say, I, I think it's sort of a myth that um, great mathematics is done by people young. I, I, one of the people who, who propagated that myth was G.H. Um, uh, Hardy, mathematician who sort of flourished in the 1910s to 1930s in Cambridge. And I think Hardy wrote a book called The Mathematician's Apology um, that uh, uh, sort of talks about how, I don't remember all the details, but more or less how it's all downhill after, you know, mathematics is done, as he would say at that time, by young men, young people, I would say more accurately. Um, but uh, the um, uh, I think that the, um, uh, I have to say, I think Hardy's reason for um, writing that had to do much more with his personal situation than it did with any kind of uh, careful study of the data. I mean, Hardy himself was a bit of a, 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 a sort of a, 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 a dour character. Um, and uh, uh, he, um, I think, had a, a bit of a sort of a, a crisis about um, whether he would do sort of great mathematics uh, I don't think any of the mathematics he did was incredibly, incredibly mind-bogglingly great. I think he was sort of in a in a good place at a good time, and he was a good mathematician. Um, but uh, I think when he got to his, I don't know, 40s, 50s, maybe, he was like feeling, I'm all washed up. And so he writes this book that says, mathematics is only done by the young. And then people have believed that ever, ever more. You know, I think, um, as I recall, the... Um, uh, I don't remember the the um I think the the main edition of mathematician's apology has a uh 
has an introduction written by C.P. Snow, if I'm remembering correctly. But somehow I remember talking to Freeman Dyson, um, uh, who was not always my favorite character, but um, I remember talking to Freeman Dyson about um, G.H. Hardy. And um, actually, I talked to another person about G.H. Hardy who had known him as well. And they really described him as a rather, um, well, I suppose dour would be a, um, a perhaps a good term for it, um, but but definitely not the um, uh, the most upbeat of characters, so to speak. So I think it's sort of a shame that that he kind of um, uh, through his uh, fairly eloquent writing in in um, in a mathematician's apology, sort of I think that propagated the idea of math is done by the young. Now, of course, there are examples of people who did their their math young. Um, partly, and we know that because they died young as well. So, for example, Evariste Galois, um, sort of inventor of group theory uh, from the 1830s, um, who uh, was also was died at the age of, I think, 21 or so, having uh, sort of created this, this interesting new direction in abstract mathematics. I think it was probably a case where it was, that was his sort of MO and, and, uh, you know, it manifested young. I think he was, uh, you know, he had the perhaps uh, feature that he was not only uh, a sort of a new mathematics kind of person, he was also a new world order kind of person and quite a political activist, um, which in France in the 1820s was a dangerous thing to be. And uh, somehow he got set up to to fight a duel, which was didn't, I think, a skill in in dueling did not come with with skill in in abstract mathematics, and he didn't didn't win, um, but uh, and, and and then died as a result of that. So, let's see. It's a question from Atori: Does prompting, as in for LLMs, have historical precursors? That's an interesting question. So one feature of prompting. You know, prompting is you are uh, you're sort of telling the LLM what you want it to do. One thing I've noticed about prompting is it's actually it really requires careful exposition. You are trying to explain to the LLM what you want it to do. You're trying to kind of have the thing you tell it sort of map into things that it's seen on the web before that will allow it to sort of continue from that prompt. And I've noticed in our efforts at prompt engineering that if you see something where you as a human say, hey, what on earth does that mean? The LLM doesn't really stand a chance. So it really is a place where there is a premium on sort of very clear exposition. So in, in some sense, prompting for an LLM is a bit like giving instructions to humans. It's kind of like, you know, do, uh, you know, how do you specify clearly what you want to have happen, whether you're a, a, a teacher who's trying to write something about what you want the student, the prompt that you want to give a student to write the essay or something like that. For some reason, I'm reminded of, of uh, these some military disasters where the prompt wasn't well given, like the charge of the light brigade in the Crimean War. Um, was well, maybe maybe that wasn't a problem with prompting. Maybe that was just a problem with communication. But the the you know uh, or or the um uh what is it? Maybe um uh what was it in the 
thousand AD or something, the um, uh, Thomas Beckett, the uh, uh, who was the oh my gosh, King of France, I think, who um, famously said to his knights about the then Archbishop. It must be, must have been later than that. I'm I'm losing track of my history, but anyway, famously said, you know, who will rid me of this quarrelsome, no troublesome priest or some such other thing, and and the knights go off and um, uh, assassinate um, the the archbishop. Uh, at least I think that happened historically. It certainly happened in in uh, a play about that subject and that was sort of a oops they misunderstood the prompt in some sense so i suppose prompting has as a historical precursor um the uh this idea of um uh um of, of humans giving prompts you know i was thinking in terms of historical precursors sort of a question of what's a historical precursor of the whole chat phenomenon and i think i think the answer is it's kind of like the invention of the telephone and here's how that goes. So computation is sort of an enabling technology that gets everywhere and informs, makes, makes a lot of new things possible, a little bit like electricity did in the 1700s, early 1800s, and so on. And just like we can now say there's a computational version of every field X, so in the past and the present, we say there's an electrical version of everything from you know kettles to cars to whatever else. And so sort of electricity is kind of like the computation and it kind of spreads through different things. But the, the question really becomes, how does that sort of get humanized? And what had happened in the development of the telephone was people certainly knew that, that there was the possibility to have sort of an electrical communication process. Um, but people hadn't managed to work, make it work. They hadn't managed to get it to a sort of human level. It's just like people had imagined that it was possible to make a text generation system. And, and there were certainly experiments on that that go all the way back to the 1950s. Um, but it never really rose to the level of being of human interest, so to speak, until basically the end of last year when ChatGPT came on the scene, um, where it sort of got above this threshold of being sort of human level. And I kind of think that's somewhat analogous to what happened with the telephone, where yes, you could have sort of a communication between, you know, thing going down electrical wire. But if you were held, holding that thing up to your ear, you would never understand intelligible speech. And then the, you know, Alexander Graham Bell, Elijah, Eliza, Elisha, Elisha Gray, the other person, right? The, um, uh, um, their invention in what, 1875, I think, um, that, uh, I think it was 1875, and I, I sort of remember that date because 1876, there was a centennial exposition um, in Philadelphia, which, uh, for example, Kelvin went to, and Kelvin gave a report on, I think he called the, maybe he called it the electrical telephone, I'm not sure, something like that, gave a report on an early demonstration of the telephone by Bell. Um, so in any case, I think that's the point at which kind of the this level of sort of human accessibility um, was uh, became a thing for in that case communication uh, uh, by you know by electricity so to speak uh, but I thought that was sort of an interesting analogy that it had been just like AI 
and sort of text generation have been a thing for many, many decades, it kind of only reached the threshold where it became sort of of human use at a particular moment. Um, now, I think talking about um, prompting and uh, kind of how do you how do you sort of give an example and then know how to continue? Um, I, I, I think it's really uh, it's something I'm trying to think. What other what other cases there are of that? I mean, it's kind of give an example now follow it or something is a thing that I suppose you see used in I don't know whether it's used in animal training, used in things like this. I'm not sure. I think it's a very human kind of thing. It's a it's a sort of almost shockingly human capability, uh, and something we're now seeing in LLMs. Um, the Tory is asking, would Feynman have been Dick Feynman have been a great prompt engineer? Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to think about that. I think he would have. Uh, he would have tried many different things. I I I will say that. Um, um, I there's a certain. There's a certain let me try this kind of puzzly type. He was he was quite into sort of puzzle type questions and so on, um, and I think he would have uh, eagerly tried out a lot of strange, slightly paradoxical uh, kinds of questions um, and seen what the LLM actually did on those. Whether he would have been able to develop an intuition, as we're all having trouble doing, um, for sort of what kinds of prompts work and what don't. I, I don't know. Let's see. Okay, I think uh, Jakey was asking, how do you think future researchers will look back at the current time in history? Uh, we look at bones and architecture to determine facts about the past. What will they look at to determine facts of our time? Um, I think that this time in history is one of the first where there's just a huge amount of material that's being recorded. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, even the very term sort of historical times is, is kind of, you know, we think of history as sort of beginning when things were written down and when we have some, some sign of what happened. I mean, that's, that's kind of recorded history is, begins in a sense with with writing and the recording of of uh, of what happened now there were certain cultures in which more was recorded than others and there were uh, for example we know quite a lot about the babylonians because they recorded all kinds of stuff and the and the medium on which they recorded things clay tablets that have uh, baked in the sun or whatever else uh, have survived very well through time we know practically nothing about, let's say, the Phoenicians, um, who were clearly a highly developed trading civilization, um, but who left behind very little written material. I don't know even on what medium they 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 uh, committed it to, uh, and we, we know that their alphabet has has partly evolved into our own alphabet, but we don't, I think, have any significant uh, volume of writing now. In the case of, um, uh, from let's say Roman times, we have stone inscriptions. Uh, we have that, well, also from Babylonian times, we have many more clay tablets and things. Um, we also have a sort of continuous copying going down the centuries of some of the 
the major works of, of Greek and, and Roman literature and so on. Um, I think that this, in a sense, that continual copying is like, oh, we're going to keep the data continually live on disks or something, rather than backing it up to tape and having the risk that the tape that we made today will not be readable in 30 years. Um, so I think that that sort of copy, copy, copy technique um, is, is what's happening with, with the maintenance of kind of live things in live storage, live digital storage, which lots of things are at this point. I think that, um, uh, you know, what's the analog of the stone inscriptions? What's the analog of the thing that we write today and we're always going to be able to read in the future? Um, well, it was books. Uh, those are kind of going much more digital. Um, and I think uh, it is a little bit more questionable what can be um, read uh, in, in the future uh, from these digital kinds of things unless they are maintained as live continuously. Um, you know, I, I know that, for example, people who've done, I don't know, medical research uh, where they look at medical records from, let's say, World War II, and they were all on paper and they're around, they exist. The ones from like the Gulf War were on computers. And when the computers came back from the war, many of them were erased. And so the records are just gone. Um, so it's a case where sort of the, the more recent digital technology, which has the advantage, you can store a lot more stuff. You were storing all the data we store digitally on paper, you know, probably the whole earth will be covered. That's an interesting calculation, actually. If you store the data of, um, uh, that um, uh, that we have uh, even on the web. Well, actually, in that that one I can I can easily say you wouldn't have the Earth would not be deep in paper based on printing out the web because the web is only maybe ten billion pages of visible stuff, and uh, you know there's eight billion people and they do not cover the Earth densely. So if we went for so even at a hundred times the ten billion pages. Um, that uh, you might have if you you know followed every page and if you looked at sort of uh, uh, deep web kinds of things, um, the uh, you know I, I don't think you're, you're not you're not covering the earth in a giant uh, coating of paper by by printing out the web. So so it's still still very possible to do that. Um, but uh, obviously there's a lots of automated data that's being taken and uh, automated video that's being taken. I mean I think a, a, a largish fraction of the sort of the the um, general storage in the world, computer storage in the world, is taken up with video at this point, um, and that might be um, uh, might be slightly more extensive. But I think uh, so. Then the question is really, you're storing all this stuff, and uh, there is a certain feature of if you're going to make a stone inscription, you probably have to really care about what it says. There's a bunch of effort to make the stone inscription. If you're going to just uh, sort of keep something in digital form, just like, you know, take that picture. It's incredibly fast to take the picture. It just goes onto your, you know, into your cloud storage system or your hard drive or whatever else. Um, it's it's very easy. You're going to take tons of those things, and, and people do. And so the question of what matters, you know, you go back and look at the history and you say, well, this particular giant inscription that somebody really took a lot of trouble carving, that probably is something people really cared about. Let's go and read it. If you've got uh, you know, a billion photographs or something, 
you say, well, which ones of these does anybody care about? We have to go try and look through them potentially to find out which ones we care about. I think that a couple of things will happen. First of all, it's much less obvious what one cares about. I mean, it's kind of like the story of the web of, oh, well, there are, there are websites that have lots of incoming links. We probably care more about those, those kinds of things. Um, and then, but there's also the question, um, uh, this, this, this question of if you have just a lot of kind of a big blob of data, how do you find what you want? Well, with search engines, it's kind of like where you type in the keywords and you say, this is what I want. But a slightly more, more, more abstracted version of what's important on the web is a little, little bit more challenging to define. I mean, in the early days of the web with things like Yahoo and, and uh, places where there were explicit indices created, explicit sort of uh, destinations listed on the web, there's a little bit more uh, effort to curate what's important on the web. I mean, there's still languages uh, in which there's sufficiently little material of that language on the web that it is still possible to curate and will probably continue to be so possible to sort of curate what are the important web pages and so on. But I think then it asks the question, okay, so you've got an LLM, for example, that's ingested the web, and you start asking it, what was the important, what's important in the history of what we see from the web? And my guess is that that will be something that LLMs can reasonably answer. They may answer in a rather uninspired way, perhaps, but they will be able to answer. These are the concepts that seem to be repeated and seem to be important and so on. So that's, that's my guess is that there'll be sort of this vast ocean of available data, uh, perhaps not well sort of signposted uh, at a very visible level, but nevertheless, just as it's easy to search, it will potentially be easy to pull out the, the sort of the trends of history that seem to be important. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because I myself have a fairly substantial archive of material. Uh, it's kind of the um, consequence of having a, a decent human memory is you get kind of spoiled and you really want to really, really remember things. So you want to have everything sort of in an archive. And I now have about, what is it, 34 years, I think, of pretty complete archive material. And then uh, before that, I've uh, I've got lots of documents um, and uh, and lots of computer files and so on, but from 34 years ago, it's fairly complete going going forward to the point of having you know every keystroke typed and and all that kind of thing. Now, an interesting question is, what do you do with all that stuff? Well, I routinely use it to search for things, but if one was going to expose sort of what are the interesting parts, if there are any, of that um, long arc of history, how does one do that? Well, I as a human, you know, I sometimes write about kind of personal history kinds of things. And I go back and look, knowing that I am looking for something about how I investigated something about the second law of thermodynamics or some, some such other thing. But if you just say, what were the big kind of trends in my life? You know, be an automated historian. Can one do that? So the first question. The second question is, when it comes to exposing all those documents, what am I really going to do about that? Because I have about 3 million emails, for example, and I have another half million scanned documents things like this. And it's unclear what one should expose, what's worth exposing, et cetera. I mean, one thing that gets tricky is that when one has that amount of material, it's there's lots of stuff there that, oh, I don't know, it's you know the corporate secrets of company XYZ 
from 30 years ago, maybe more. And it's like, is that still secret? Is it not? Who knows? Probably not. But who's to know for sure? Um, it's certainly, and, you know, tracking down sort of should we, can we expose these things is non-trivial, particularly for company things, because companies may not exist anymore. It may not be obvious what, you know, what happened to sort of uh, uh, confidentiality agreements for companies that don't exist anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are plenty of things where there are, oh, I don't know, things people sent me and so on, where there's sort of a question of at what point can you expose those things? And it's uh, uh, what point should you expose those things? Do you expose those things if, uh, you know, do you have a make a judgment call about, you know, will the world be a better place if we expose these things? Or do you just say, we'll just expose these things because the value of accurate history exceeds the potential uh, sort of uh, is more important than sort of uh, uh, the the making sure that you make the world a nicer place. I mean, for example, uh, some of the people we mentioned, like Benoit Mandelbrot, for example, uh, sent me some really terrible letters and emails and things like this, which which um, when I came to write kind of an obituary piece about him, I at first really couldn't write it because I, I I looked at these things and it's like, my gosh, I can't quote these things. These are too horrifying. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, later on, I kind of found ways to, to, to do that, but, or at least to do some of that. But I think, you know, in their raw form, they're, uh, they don't make the world seem like a nicer place. Um, and, uh, you know, to give that as an example, and there, there are other cases of things like that, quite a lot of other cases of things like that. So it's a question of whether to whether to expose those things. I feel pretty good about the things that I myself have authored, um, and I, I feel like I could pretty much expose all of those and feel, you know, like uh, I don't know, maybe maybe because I, I've um, uh, I've been fortunate enough to not, uh, uh, or perhaps put enough effort into to only saying the things that I kind of want to say. Um, and uh, uh, that that um, so that part is probably exposable, but without the other side of some of those conversations, it becomes difficult to understand what what's going on. So it's it's one of these sort of efforts and mysteries is is how to expose that stuff and also how to signpost what you should care about and what you shouldn't care about, because altogether in my own my own archive is like three and a half million documents, and uh, that's already that's certainly enough. That nobody's going to just flip through them all and, and see what's uh, see what's there. Um, huh, this is an interesting question from M. Trudeau. Can we restore old lost books by reading other old books which talk about them? It's interesting. I, you know, it makes one wonder. Uh, let's say that you had uh, you were. You know, scanning the web, and there's some document, some famous book, let's say, and you find on the web not the actual text of the book because maybe that's copyrighted in some way and it's not not accessible and or something. But you find all kinds of people quoting from that book. And you find all these separate quotes, and each quote on its own is quite short, but you find lots of them. Question is, can you sort of reassemble those 
if you are sort of sucking them from the whole web and sort of trying to arrange them, can you reassemble them? It's a little bit like shotgun sequence, uh, shotgun sequencing of, of DNA, where you where you break the DNA into you know like thirty blocks, and then you figure out what the overlaps are and you try and reassemble them. My guess is you can reassemble texts like that. Now the question is, when you have sort of people who characterize or talk about another text, uh, do they say enough? And can you look at it from enough different angles that you can reconstruct what must have been in there? It's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. I mean, I know people have done that kind of uh, looking at, I don't know, you know, famous books like the Bible and things like that. They'll claim, you know, oh, there are these different parts of it that must have all come from a common source. We can see that. We can see something of a common source by looking at the, the output and the actual things that are there in the document. Um, but uh, it's an interesting question whether with LLMs and so on, it will, I, I think it will be easier to do that kind of thing. Um, how much information you'll need to be able to sort of triangulate what was that you know, lo lost work of Euclid or something, what must have been in it. I'm a little bit pessimistic that there may not be enough uh, sort of that was uh, preserved that one can triangulate back. And I think one of the things about archaeology that's always surprising is you would think, well, we know a certain amount about the past, and the past is the past, and we're never going to know more about it. But the remarkable thing is that as time goes forward, and we get more and more sensitive techniques in terms of the physics and so on, it becomes possible to just discover more and more about the past. And also because, you know, there are random things buried under cities, and occasionally somebody will build some new thing in that city, and they'll excavate a place where there's lots of significant stuff buried. I mean, I've always thought that uh, it's one of the sort of interesting challenges, you know, below a city like Athens or Rome or something like that, there are probably many, many layers of stuff from classical times that it's buried there. But how was one going to get to it? Because nowadays, you know, there's a shopping mall built on that site or whatever else. And I've always thought it would be an interesting project to try to make kind of a burrowing autonomous worm type thing that would just go and explore underneath some of these history, these cities with very long histories and kind of it would go there. It would have to be, I don't know how it would be powered exactly, but it would just go and sort of dig its own tunnel um, deep underground and kind of see what it finds. Now, of course, one has to be careful that in doing that, as it digs its tunnel, it doesn't dig its way through that great work of literature that was buried there. I mean, this is a famous problem that uh, uh, this person, Schliemann, who excavated Troy, was a famous problem that Troy, it turns out, is, a, is you know, the historical city of Troy, which wasn't clear was a historical city. It was, you know, it was described by Homer, but it wasn't clear it was um, something, and I guess it was mentioned by other classical writers, but it wasn't clear that it was something that was real as opposed to a mythological kind of thing. But... Uh, as happened with many of those ancient cities, it was built in a series of layers. You know, there'd be, you know, Troy one, and then something happened to it. I don't know, an earthquake, a fire, whatever else, uh, conquest. And then there was another thing built at the same site that just sort of built up this, this sequence of archaeological layers. I don't think that was well understood back in the, in the 1800s when, when Troy was first excavated. And I think then, so the, the famous, very unfortunate thing that happened was the person who was excavating it, who gets a lot of points for having thought to excavate it and so on, uh, used dynamite to blow through 
Uh, so it must have been late 1800s, I think, because that dynamite hadn't been invented until then, to blow through some layers to get to the really important Homeric layer or whatever. And unfortunately, probably that blew through the Homeric layer and blew it up with dynamite, which is kind of, you know, that that's that becomes pretty hard to reconstruct. Um, but so that's the thing to avoid and the tunneling, uh, you know, the, the archaeological worm, so to speak. But I, I am very curious what there would be uh, in places where there just hasn't, one hasn't been able to excavate, um, you know, what would actually be there and whether there are many things one would discover from the past that, that are completely unknown today. I mean, one of my favorite questions about that is the Antikythera device, the one example we have of a kind of a clockwork computer from antiquity where there weren't similar things produced that we know of until the 1600s. It's like there can't have only been one of these things. This was, you know, there must have been lots of them. And I've always sort of wanted, can one find the Antikythera workshop or the Antikythera factory? There won't have been production line factory type things, but can one find the workshop where, you know, whoever it was, maybe it was Archimedes, was, was producing these things, so to speak. And, you know, is that something that will one day be excavatable and one will be able to see, oh, yeah, they made something which was kind of like a, uh, you know, a thing that did these kinds of mathematical, astronomical computations and stuff. Maybe we'd look at it and say, gosh, why were they computing that? And uh, that would be an interesting moment. Let's see. Uh, Jimmy asks comments. Seneca wrote many, many letters. Could we detect if some have been wrongly attributed to him? You know, it's been a very common uh, use of kind of computer textual analysis, or whether it's, you know, Shakespeare versus Bacon and all these kinds of things. You know, who really wrote this document? It is an interesting question whether in this LLM time, whether there will be a more sensitive way to do that. Because typically the way that's done, has been done in the past, is just the statistics of word use and so on. In a sense, in LLM, is plugging into much higher level, much more sort of longer range statistical properties. And it's an interesting question whether, whether the LLM will effectively be able to detect uh, more easily those kinds of questions about what was, uh, you know, about authorship. Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I suppose, um, you know, the, the, the zero I thought a question for an LLM relevant to, uh, uh, lots of educational things these days is was that piece of text written by an LLM or was it written by a human? And that is you know, with today's LLMs, there's still a certain amount that one can do to test for that. I have to say, I don't believe that will be a continually uh, thing that will be continued to be possible. You think one can specifically train an LLM to evade any kind of detection technique that one could come up with. Um, a question from Nata about uh, historical approach to exploring possible worlds and create alternative historical hypothetical situations and learn what went wrong hypothetically. Uh, yeah, it's a, a, an, an ask whether AIs can do better at sort of telling alternative histories. It's an interesting question. I, I, I would think that that's a place where the sort of LLM AI technique would be better rather than worse. I mean, I've seen 
what it does, I've asked it many kinds of things, where it has to knit together things which are sort of real with things which are not real. Like I happened to ask it, um, uh, I asked it, um, uh, there's a, a language called Mixel that Don Knuth made up as a sort of a generalized um, sort of uh, pseudo assembly language to use for sort of exposition purposes for computer science. And um, uh, well, I was was exchanging mail with with Don about about this uh, about LLMs, uh, which he initially was very negative about. I have to say, I think I think he's now a little bit more positive about them. But um, uh, uh, so I just for fun, I I, I asked um, ChatGPT to say, you know, write a, a persuasive essay that argues that Mixel was produced in Paleolithic times, and um, it. It did an interesting job talking about. Um, uh, I mean, it it made it interestingly. It, it made a disclaimer that I think it's been specifically engineered to do. Um, that said, oh, this is just a work of fiction because that's not really what happened. Um, but then it went right ahead and made all kinds of hypotheses about uh, uh, the sort of emergence of rational thinking and how that related to sort of the emergence of programming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm afraid it was all a bit nonsense, but it was still an interesting kind of apparent alternative history. So I, I kind of think that's probably one of the one of the things that LLMs will be able to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, Math Online is commenting, isn't some kind of um, X-raying or ultrasound or something safer than digging through ancient architecture? Um, or is that still potentially dangerous? I, I would, yeah, it's a good question because, you know, we currently think that ultrasound, for example, is pretty harmless. Like MRI is pretty harmless. You know, X-rays we know aren't completely harmless. I mean, X-rays can destroy kind of genetic material and so on, ionizing radiation from X-rays can destroy biological molecules, et cetera. You know, ultrasound, maybe there are issues if you generate small bubbles and things like that from the ultrasound, maybe bad things can happen. So, you know, one of the things about archaeology is you have to ask, when are you going to excavate this thing? Because it could be the case that with today's technology, you'll damage it in some way. If you wait 50 years or 100 years, there may be a less invasive way to do the same thing. Problem is, then you're waiting 100 years, and then you don't know what happened for, you know, you don't know what was there for 100 years. And that's kind of, um, uh, that's kind of a bad thing. But um, uh, this whole question about some uh, uh, sort of imaging of different kinds, I think one of the things is that, uh, you know, the earth, soil, whatever, um, is is a bit opaque to lots of things. It's hard to image through it. Um, Memes is mentioning here uh, the use of muons to probe pyramids in Egypt. Yeah, that's been a thing actually since ever since cosmic rays were discovered. Um, people have been interested in using them as sort of a natural source of of uh, uh, of something that will penetrate um, large uh, will, will penetrate through through at least to some extent rock and so on and there was kind of an effort to find you know burial chambers inside pyramids that uh, were built so that the burial chambers would not be found but but now 
you know, if you look at cosmic ray muons and they're coming at different angles and you say, well, how many muons were coming um, to this in this direction versus that direction? Oh, the muons will be absorbed if they're going through stone. But if there was an empty space somewhere in this pyramid, um, then the muons will be absorbed less. And you'll see some signature of that from the angular distribution of muons. Um, I think you know, there was an attempt at one time to use neutrinos, which are an even better way of getting through lots of stuff to kind of do tomography on the Earth to look for, I don't know, oil and things like this. And that never really panned out. But it's certainly something which in the future one can imagine will be possible. Um, so let's see. Uh, Math is also commenting here, maybe I can help with more passive imaging through buildings. I mean, one of the things that is a general feature of sort of the current round of AI and machine learning and so on is sort of putting things together, putting sort of shards of information together in expected ways is something that these systems are quite good at. So no doubt you'll be able to get shards of a pot, for example, and say, well, you know, given that we kind of have an idea that it might have been a pot, given that pots were a common thing, so then we can assemble these shards to make a pot. Now, you know, what will work less well is the unexpected, so to speak. Some things where we know oh, it's got to be some smooth surface because it was done with pottery or whatever else, um, it's going to be successful on that. But the thing where there's this totally unexpected thing, like the Antikythera device, let's say, where nobody had any idea that any such thing would exist from antiquity, I think one will do less well with this sort of AI reconstruction. But the thing that is really notable is it doesn't, which we also kind of have intuition about as humans, it doesn't take much to sort of tip one off to what something is. You know, it doesn't take much to know, oh, I look there, I see this very fuzzy, fuzzy image, but I really know that's my friend so-and-so. Um, it's surprisingly easy to sort of, given the sort of prior information on what's actually out there in the world, to say, oh, given these little pieces, these little shards of information, this is how that must fill in, just based on what I know is out there in the world. And, and AI is the current generation is doing rather well at that. that. Um, uh, wish comments a story I did not, I, I do regularly remember this story. A library in Pompeii where scrolls were lost because archaeologists tried to open them and, and didn't succeed. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a challenging thing to know. You know, the only safe thing to do probably is to do nothing. But even that may not be safe because you know, if there's some area that is going to, you know, as climate change or something like this is going to become different. You know, as the as uh, um, is is there's going to be an ice age there or something, and then you know, a glacier is going to come through and it's all going to be gone then. Um, you know, it's uh, then then you kind of got to do something if you want to preserve it. Well, let's see, maybe one more thing here. Um, there's a comment here from Nick. Neural net weights will be a more efficient means of archiving the centuries than books and libraries, um, which will be an important thing because the volume of published material will climb exponentially. Okay, I think there are several comments on this. 
first point is, if that material that is growing maybe so rapidly really has content, then it won't be compressible into a neural net of a certain size. I mean, you know, ChatGPT has 175 billion weights and is trained on maybe a trillion-ish words of, of text. So the number of weights, you know, if you factor in the fact that uh, each weight is a real number and that's more than one character and so on of sort of raw bits, um, it's, it's being, you know, what it has in it is something somewhat comparable to the size of its training data. And I think the question of can you take what is being written and compress it down to something much smaller, um, my guess is that, that, well, sometimes you will be able to do that because a lot of what's being written is very repetitive. Um, but in the end, there is, in some sense, new knowledge that's eventually being gleaned. And that new knowledge is not going to be able to be sort of compressible down into something that's sort of the size of just the old knowledge. Now, what I do think will happen is that I think a lot of what's in a chat GPT, for example, is knowing things about how to string sentences together. And I think that can be done quite generically without also knowing a lot of, we have to know some facts, but you don't need to know detailed facts about everything to be able to do that. And so I think that there will eventually be, perhaps not so eventually, there'll be sort of systems where one separated off the linguistic fluency and maybe even the common sense from the attempt to capture sort of true facts and knowledge in the system, which I don't think is something that is terribly efficiently done actually with neural nets. So I think it's it would not be right to say that sort of we can just decide, I mean, as people have imagined with, with sacred books of the past, everything that's worth knowing is in book X. Everything that's worth knowing is what's in ChatGPT in 2023. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's right. Um, I think that as human knowledge expands, that becomes less and less true. Now, uh, that, well, it does assume that all those academic papers that are being written, all those websites that are being written, aren't just, you know, rewriting the same old stuff all over again. And of course, there is a certain amount of that kind of rewriting of the same old stuff. But there is also new knowledge, and even this whole idea of computational irreducibility, the whole idea that there are computations that you have to just do them in order to find out the results. You can't sort of shortcut them. The whole idea of computational irreducibility is that, yes, there is, in a sense, new knowledge that can be produced that can only be got to by doing these kinds of computations. So that's a... Um, uh, um, that's kind of a, a different thing there. Now, Nick is, is also commenting on, on the exponential increase of, of published material. You know, that's an interesting thing, and I wonder what's going to happen with the, the rise of LLMs. Because it used to be the case that writing something, a big essay, was a sign of serious human effort. You know, just like putting something on a stone tablet or something was a sign of serious human effort. Well, that sort of serious human effort to write an essay sort of got went away recently. It's perfectly possible to get an LLM to write an essay without spending the human effort. And so this idea that sort of 
you're doing these things and they're vetted or something by virtue of the fact that somebody had to go to the right effort of writing an essay, that's not long, no longer going to be a thing. And so that means there will be just vastly more things produced where those things are presented in the form of essays. Now, that may be a good thing because essays are a convenient thing for humans to digest, but there'll be millions, billions, probably, of things like papers produced, which are automatically produced. And no doubt what reads them will also be AIs, um, you know, looking for particular features that the, uh, the owners of those AIs want to find. But I kind of think that, um, uh, yes, that there'll be, there may very well be a, a vast increase. It's, it's an interesting dynamic because there will be an increase of volume and some of that volume will be the result of irreducible computations that were done, perhaps even initiated by AIs. And so there becomes this vast corpus of material, which is in very human form, but has never been read by a human. And then what is the significance of that? And you know, is there something where the humans feel that, oh, we should go and read through all these you know, 10,000 years of uh, uh, equivalent of journal papers just produced in the last month, let's say, by an AI. Um, interesting question, how that, how that ends up. Um, Jimmy comments that uh, prompting has relevance in psychology and philosophy. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I certainly, um, um, I mean, for sure, when you ask somebody questions, the question of what kinds of answers you're going to get depends a lot on how you ask the question and what you have primed the whole situation with. Uh, but it's an interesting question. Maybe there's actual, I'm sure there is literature for, oh, I don't know, whether it's uh, kind of questioning people or, or therapies or whatever else. There must be literature. It's interesting to look that up, see whether we can learn something for prompting the AIs. Good, good, good thought. Um, Atori comments, could it be that the best prompters now are poets or better computational poets? Uh, maybe. I don't know. It's, it's the prompts that we produced are, are clean, but not terribly poetic. It is also interesting that this idea of give it some examples, um, which is a useful thing in, in exposition in general, but this is kind of showing you why that's useful. It's kind of getting thought patterns in the right groove, so to speak, to understand what's being said. Um, RBS is commenting, I don't think RAM or ROM type chips will survive the passage of time or solid state drives will. And, and I think people also say that magnetic tapes uh, will, you know, people have quoted magnetic tapes as having a lifetime of like 25 years, things like that. I have older tapes than that, which we have been able to read. Um, and I don't know, you know, there's a certain diffusion time for the magnetic domains and I don't know uh, what that's estimated to be. And I also don't know to what extent it's affected by things like temperature, storage temperature, and so on. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that you know, some, some people believe that you know, if you etch it in micro size onto a piece of quartz or something like that, that it's a better way to keep it, uh, to have it survive. Of course, you then have to have the problem of uh, you know, how do you read those things and that becomes a pain. All right. Well, I think that's as much as we have time for today. But um, thanks for all these questions. I noticed there were several others about more general topics here. 
which I would love to, to address another time. So, well, thanks for, for joining us and uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.